Hey everybody, it's Dan Dan, and welcome to another edition of Dan Dan's Big Book Study. Today we're going to do a story, uh, one that has a great impact on me, and it's one out of the big book, which in the fourth edition starts on page 544. It's a story called Freedom from Bondage, and I don't know much about the history of this story other than what it says at the top of the page, and it says, Young when she joined, this AA believes her serious drinking was the result of even deeper defects. She here tells how she was set free. This story ends with a really popular thing, a thing that a lot of us think of as the resentment prayer or, you know, how to get rid of resentments in two weeks, right? Because it's on page 552 and it's at the end of the story. The story itself is fascinating, though. Even though I can't relate to all of it, I can easily relate to the emotions. So let's get right on it. Freedom from bondage. The mental twist that led up to my drinking began many years before I ever took a drink. For I'm one of those whose history proves conclusively that my drinking was a symptom of a deeper trouble. Through my efforts to get down to causes and conditions, I stand convinced that my emotional illness has been present from my earliest recollection. I never did react normally to any emotional situation. I love that. I never did either. I never reacted normally to emotional situations. It goes on. The medical profession would probably tell me I was conditioned for alcoholism by the things that happened to me in my childhood. And I am sure they would be right as far as they go. But AA has taught me I am the result of the way I reacted. Wait a second here. She's proposing to us that it's not her cause. The cause of her alcoholism isn't the conditions she grew up in or the conditions she created. It is the way she reacted to those conditions. The result of the way I reacted to what happened to me as a child. What is much more important to me, AA has taught me that through this simple program, I may experience a change in this reaction pattern that will indeed allow me to match calamity with serenity. That's so true, you know. That's the reason why we do it right there. We want to be able to match calamity with serenity. Difficult times with a peaceful attitude. Things that are losses with a sense of gratitude. It goes on. I am the only child, and when I was seven years old, my parents separated very abruptly with no explanation at all. I was taken from my home in Florida to my grandparents' home in the Midwest. My mother went to a nearby city to go to work, and my father, being an alcoholic, simply went. My grandparents were strangers to me. I remember being lonely, terrified, and hurt. In time, I concluded that the reason I was hurt was because I loved my parents, and I concluded, too, that if I never allowed myself to love anybody or anything— I can never get hurt again. That kind of falls on that don't have any expectations idea. We'll talk about that in another one. It became second nature for me to remove myself from anything or anybody I found myself growing fond of. I grew up believing that one had to be totally self-sufficient for one never dared to depend on another human being. I thought that life was a pretty simple thing. You simply made a plan for your life based upon what you wanted and then you needed only the courage to go after that. We hear that today, echoed all the time. All the time. Get rid of the toxic people. 
stay away from anybody that gets in the way of your goals, that type of stuff, that type of self-reliance, that type of self-centeredness. And she goes on. In my late teens, I became aware of emotions I'd not counted on. Restlessness, anxiety, fear, and insecurity. The only kind of security I knew anything about at that time was material security. And I decided that all these intruders would vanish immediately if I only had a lot of money. The solution seemed very simple. With cold calculation, I set about to marry a fortune. And I did. The only thing this changed, however, was my surroundings. And it was soon apparent that I could have the same uncomfortable emotions with an unlimited checking account that I could on a working girl's salary. It was impossible for me to say at this point, maybe there is something wrong with my philosophy. And I certainly couldn't say, maybe there is something wrong with me. It was not difficult to convince myself that my unhappiness was the fault of the man I had married. And I divorced him at the end of a year. I was married and divorced again before I was 23 years old, this time to a prominent band leader, a man whom many women wanted. I thought this would give me ego strength, make me feel wanted and secure, and alleviate my fears, but again, nothing changed inside. The only importance in all this lies in the fact that at 23, I was just as sick as I was at 33 when I came into AA. But at that time, I apparently had no place to go because I had no drinking problem. Had I been able to explain to a psychiatrist the feelings of futility, loneliness, and the lack of purpose that had come with my deep sense of personal failure at this second divorce, I seriously doubt that the good doctor would have convinced me that my basic problem was a spiritual hunger. But AA has shown me that this was the truth. And if I had been able to turn to the church at that time, I'm sure they could not have convinced me my sickness was within myself, nor could they have shown me that the need for self-analysis that AA has shown me is vital if I am to survive. So I had no place to go, or it seemed to me. I wasn't afraid of anything or anybody after I learned about drinking. It seemed right from the beginning that with liquor, I could always retire to my little private world where nobody could get at me to hurt me. Wow. That is so true for me, too. I could always retire to my little private world where nobody could get me or hurt me. Wow. That's such a powerful line for so many of us. That's exactly what we often do. She goes on. It seems only fitting that when I did finally fall in love, it was with an alcoholic. And for the next 10 years, I progressed as rapidly as is humanly possible into what I believed to be a hopeless alcoholism. During this time, our country was at war. My husband was soon in uniform and among the first to go overseas. My reaction to this was identical in many respects to my reaction to my parents leaving me when I was seven. So that old stuff comes back. Apparently, I'd grown physically at the customary rate of speed, and I had acquired an average amount of intellectual training in the intervening years. But there had been no emotional maturity at all. I realize now that this phase of my development had been arrested by my obsession with self and my egocentricity had reached such proportions that adjustment to anything outside my personal control was impossible for me. I was immersed in self-pity and resentment and the only people who would support this attitude or who I felt understood me at all were the people I met in bars 
and the ones who drank as I did. So true. I built a tribe too. I never had a team of people to help me get things. I always had a tribe that would never challenge my defects. So true. It became more and more necessary to escape from myself. For my remorse and shame and humiliation when I was sober were almost unbearable. The only way existence was possible was through rationalizing every sober moment and drinking myself into complete oblivion as often as I could. I feel like I'm telling my story right there. My husband eventually returned, but it was not long until we realized we could not continue our marriage. By this time, I was such a past master at kidding myself that I had convinced myself I had sat out a war and waited for this man to come home. And as my resentment and self-pity grew, so did my alcohol problem. The last three years of my drinking, I drank on my job. The amount of willpower exercised to control my drinking during working hours diverted into a constructive channel would have made me president. And the thing that made the willpower possible was the knowledge that as soon as my day was finished, I could drink myself into oblivion. Inside, though, I was scared to death, for I knew that the time was coming, and it couldn't be too remote, when I would be unable to hold that job. Maybe I wouldn't be able to hold any job, or maybe, and this was my greatest fear, I wouldn't care whether I had a job or not. I knew it didn't make any difference where I started. The inevitable end would be Skid Row. The only reality I was able to face had been forced upon me by its very repetition. I had to drink. Ah, that's interesting. The only reality I was able to face had been forced upon me by its very repetition. I had to drink, and I didn't know there was anything in the world that could be done about it. About this time, I met a man who had three motherless children and it seemed that might be a solution to my problem. I had never had a child, and this had been a satisfactory excuse many times for my drinking. It seemed logical to me that if I married this man and took the responsibility for these children, that they would keep me sober. So I married again. This caused the comment from one of my AA friends. When I told my story after coming into the program, that I had always been a cinch for the program for I had always been interested in mankind. I was just taking them one man at a time. The children kept me sober for darn near three weeks. <laughs> darn near three weeks. Boy, it really worked. And then I went on, please God, my last drunk. I've heard it said many times in AA. There is just one good drunk in every alcoholic's life, and that's the one that brings us into AA. And I believe it. I was drunk for 60 days around the clock, and it was my intention, literally, to drink myself to death. I went to jail for the second time during this period for being drunk in an automobile. I was the only person I'd ever known personally who had ever been in jail, and I guess it was most significant that the second time was less humiliating than the first had been. Finally, in desperation, my family appealed to a doctor for advice, and he suggested AA. The people who came knew immediately I was in no condition to absorb anything in the program. I was put in a sanitarium to be defogged so that I could make a sober decision about this for myself. It was here that I realized for the first time that as a practicing alcoholic, I had no rights. Society can do anything it chooses to do with me when I am drunk, and I can't lift a finger to stop it for I forfeit my rights 
through the simple expedient of becoming a menace to myself and to the people around me. With deep shame came the knowledge, too, that I had lived with no sense of social obligation, nor had I known the meaning of moral responsibility to my fellow men. I attended my first AA meeting eight years ago, and it is with deep gratitude that I'm able to say I've not had a drink since that time, and that I take no sedation or narcotics, for this program is to me one of complete sobriety. I no longer need to escape reality. One of the truly great things AA has taught me is that reality, too, has two sides. I had only known the grim side before the program, but now I had a chance to learn about the pleasant side as well. The AA members who sponsored me told me in the beginning that I would not only find a way to live without having a drink, but that I would find a way to live without wanting a drink. If I would do these simple things, if I would do these simple things, they said, if you want to know how this program works, take the first word of your question. The H is for honesty. The O is for open-mindedness and the W is for willingness. These are big book calls, the essentials of recovery. They suggested that I study the AA book and try to take the 12 steps according to the explanation in the book. For it was their opinion that the application of these principles in our daily lives will get us sober and keep us sober. I believe this, and I believe too that it is equally impossible to practice these principles to the best of our ability a day at a time and still drink, for I don't think the two things are compatible. I had no problem admitting I was powerless over alcohol, and I certainly agreed that my life had become unmanageable. I had only to reflect on the contrast between the plans I made so many years ago for my life with what really happened to know I couldn't manage my life drunk or sober. AA taught me that willingness to believe was enough for a beginning. It's been true in my case, nor could I quarrel with restore us to sanity. For my actions drunk or sober before AA were not those of a sane person. My desire to be honest with myself made it necessary for me to realize that my thinking was irrational. It had to be, or I could not have justified my erratic behavior as I did. I've been benefited from a dictionary definition I found that reads, Rationalization is giving a socially acceptable reason for socially unacceptable behavior, and socially unacceptable behavior is a form of insanity. AA has given me serenity of purpose and the opportunity to be of service to God and the people about me. And I am serene in the infallibility of these principles that provide the fulfillment of my purpose. AA has taught me that I will have peace of mind in exact proportion to the peace of mind I bring into the lives of other people. Let's read that again. AA has taught me that I will have peace of mind in exact proportion to the peace of mind I bring into the lives of other people. And it has taught me the true meaning of the admonition, happy are ye who know these things and do them. For the only problems I have now are those I create when I break out in a rash of self-will. I've had many spiritual experiences since I've been in the program. Many that I didn't recognize right away, for I'm slow to learn and they take many guises. But one was so outstanding that I like to pass it on whenever I can in the hope that it will help someone else 
as it has me. As I said earlier, self-pity and resentment were my constant companions, and my inventory began to look like a 33-year diary, for I had seemed to have a resentment against everybody I had ever known. All but one responded to the treatment, suggested in the steps immediately, but this one posed a problem. This resentment was against my mother, and it was 25 years old. I had fed it, fanned it, and nurtured it as one might a delicate child, and it had become as much a part of me as my breathing. It had provided me with excuses for my lack of education, my marital failures, personal failures, inadequacy, and of course, my alcoholism. And though I really thought I had been willing to part with it, now I knew I was reluctant to let it go. One morning, however, I realized I had to get rid of it, for my reprieve was running out, and if I didn't get rid of it, I was going to get drunk. And I didn't want to get drunk anymore. In my prayers that morning, I asked God to point out to me some way to be free of this resentment. During the day, a friend of mine brought to me some magazines to take to a hospital group I was interested in. I looked through them. A banner across one featured an article by a prominent clergyman in which I caught the word resentment. And the clergyman would be a guy named Norman Vincent Peale. It doesn't say that in here. That's who it was. He said, in effect, and here is this special prayer. It's relative to her mother, a resentment that would not go away, that she had nurtured like a delicate child for 25 years. This is what she did and said it worked. He said, in effect, if you have a resentment you want to be free of, if you will pray for the person or the thing that you resent, you will be free. If you ask in prayer for everything you want for yourself to be given to them, you, you, you will be free. Ask for their health, their prosperity, their happiness, and you will be free. Even when you don't really want it for them and your prayers are only words and you don't mean it. Go ahead and do it. Anyway, do it every day for two weeks and you will find you have come to mean it and want it for them. And you will realize that where you used to feel bitterness and resentment and hatred, you now feel compassionate, understanding and love. It worked for me then and it has worked for me many times since and it will work for me every time I am willing to work it. Sometimes I have to ask first for the willingness but it too always comes. And because it works for me, it will work for all of us. As another great man says, the only real freedom a human being can ever know is doing what you ought to do because you want to do it. This great experience that released me from the bondage of hatred and replaced it with love is really just another affirmation of the truth I know. I get everything I need in Alcoholics Anonymous. And everything I need, I get. And when I get what I need, I invariably find that it was just what I wanted all the time. Such a vital and important story in our program. So important to remember. How do we deal with those persistent resentments? You can check it out, page 544 in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's be the fourth edition. And give that a read. Study it. There's so much good stuff in there. And if you can just do this for two weeks, imagine that resentment you can't get rid of. Two weeks from now, it can be gone. Just picture yourself free of that. Picture yourself being able to be kind and patient and tolerant of that person. 
because you will be free. Thanks for listening to Dan Dan's Big Book Study. And keep on trudging that road to a happy destiny. Be sure to subscribe to Dan Dan's Big Book Study. We appreciate all the subscriptions that you can provide, and we are grateful to have a chance to talk to you in this podcast format. Share it with your friends and let people know Dan Dan's Big Book Study is here to help you.